welcome to SG Fun, a podcast where we review episodes of Stargate that we like, that we think are important, and talk briefly about some of the others. I'm Trishy Matson. Hey, and I'm Andrew Patias. And I'm David Schaub. In the news for Stargate, nothing so far about what may or may not be going on with the alleged new show that they're trying to uh, create. But in gaming news, the Stargate SG-1 role-playing game from Wyvern, which is 5e-based, not only fully funded, but they reaped $426,000, more than 10 times their goal, from thousands of backers. So it's going to be available as a game for backers sooner, for others sometime after April. As I speak, it's still possible to get in on that. There will be a link in the show notes. Also, there is a video of actual play of that game with David Hewlett, who played McKay, David Blue, Eli, Julie McNiven, Simone Bailey, Rainbow Sun Franks, and Alexis Cruz, who played Scara yep. in the movie mm -hmm. and the series, all taking part in a live Stargate mission. I've seen that show. It's fun. Check it out. I'm going to assume not to. This sounds like spoilers to me. Oh, right. <laughs> that game is set in season six time. Oh, okay. So definitely, if you haven't watched the show and if you're experiencing the episodes new to you, uh, like David, then don't check that game or video out <laughs> just yet. <laughs> I also have some follow-up from our previous podcast. I just wanted to be very clear that, yes, I understand what a chevron is. <laughs> so I made the horrible mistake, and I apologize, that there are, of course, seven chevrons, which are the angled little things that mark which symbols are being used. The Stargates have 39 symbols on them, and it's the dialer that has 38 symbols on it, because in theory, the dialer knows where home is. We'll see going forward if that makes any sense, but hey, I thought I should be clear with the follow-up. Right. Yeah, we have some very particular listeners, I think is what, what we're saying. So... Here we go. <laughs> if you want to argue with, with us or discuss with us the super science of Stargate, please join the forums at The Incomparable. <laughs> <laughs> Sign up for a subscription for The Incomparable. Theincomparable.com, all one word. Right. Okay. So we are covering two episodes in depth today and talking about quite a few others in shallow. <laughs> <laughs> the first one we're doing is in depth. It is the sort of part three of the two-part pilot, because something that happens that some people see at the very end of the two-part pilot has a huge effect on what happens in this episode, The Enemy Within. David, can you remind us what happens? Teal'c is now a prisoner, and Colonel Kennedy, who we're not supposed to like, wants him <laughs> for scientific research. Teal'c confirms that the Gould seeded the galaxy with humans. Kowalski has been infected with an immature Gould fighting him for control. After killing a doctor, the Gould, with racial memories as well as Kowalski's memories, blows their cover but fails to escape. Kennedy wants to experiment on Kowalski, too. Hammond will have none of the strategy BS, so they try to, to operate. While it seemed successful, the ghoul takes full control and tries to escape again. Teal'c saves the day, killing the Kowalski Gould, and the president okays his position on SG-1. Yep. Some people see at the end of the pilot where Kowalski has a snake go into his neck, a Gould, and his eyes glow at the end of the show. It appears throughout this episode that... There's a struggle for control. Kowalski 
doesn't know at first that he's been invaded. There are little hints, like even if you didn't see the end part of the pilot uh, where that happened, such as when the Gould are trying to get into the base at the beginning of the show, and they keep thudding up against the iris and presumably dying. Kowalski says, part of me wants to let them go through and give them the fight they're looking for, which, of course, could be the Gould saying, hey, let them through, let them through. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't even think of that, yeah. It's very unclear sometimes who's in control, but other times it is just beautifully performed how obvious it is. (laughs) This is... A wonderful, wonderful episode. I really like this episode. It is basically a bottle episode, and it's just everything good about bottle episodes. Mm-hmm. Right. So they spent they spent a decent amount of money probably doing the big confrontation at the end of the Children of the Gods. This show does not appear to be, you know, really, really uh, dripping in money. Right. It basically all takes place on the base that they already have the set for. But they, they make really good use of what they have, which is, you know, that set, the the big room with the gate in it. And those thumps on the on the thing, like, you know, presumably that required no actual CGI to do, maybe just somebody hitting the gate from behind and, and some, some Foley stuff. Bugs on a windshield. It brings that sense of suspense that, again, I think the show can be good at in where like, oh, you know, this is, you know, what's going to happen? What's, how are we going to deal with this? And it's, again, one of the reasons I think this, sh- this episode is good is because they set it up. It's a good setup and it's, it's you know, pretty good writing to get us into it. No, right immediately that that the Gould are trying to uh, to get at them, trying to get back at them. Apophis is trying to get back at them, and that sets the stage for uh, for what's going to happen for the rest of the episode. It's a bottle episode. It's a base under siege episode. There's an enemy within. There's a traitor episode. It's just it has all the good elements. And also, this is the first episode, from my perspective, that it feels remotely like what I was expecting Stargate to feel like. Mm-hmm. It felt like a strong transition going from Children of the Gods to this. It's like, okay, I feel more comfortable now. This feels like what I expected Stargate to feel like. Yeah, it's like, here we go. And we get to see a lot of really strong character work. Jack defending Teal'c. Hammond stepping in and defending Teal'c and trying to keep him, since he now considers him part of the team, although not officially yet. That doesn't happen until the end of the episode. And great work from the actor portraying Kowalski, who I forgot to look up. I don't have his name, but really, he does a fine, fine job of being the guy who at first doesn't know what's going on, and then comes to the horrifying realization after he plays evil, ghouled, controlled Kowalski killing doctors and trying to get back through the gate and then struggling with the realization, begging people to get it out of him or if they can't, you know, being absolutely willing to take the risk because he doesn't want to live under this control. He doesn't want to be doing bad things. He, He just does a splendid job of portraying all those emotions. Um, and I'm going to look him up so I can say his name in a minute. <laughs> Jay Akavone or Akavone. Okay. I'm, I'm looking at the, the Stargate wiki right now. And then John Deal in the movie. And I know John Deal from um, Miami Vice, actually. So he was, mm. was a familiar face of a, you know, a B-lister, whatever you call it, an actor who's not sort of a, an A-lister who's going to be a, a main character. And there's actually other interesting actors who, who also have roles in the TV show in the movie, but we'll get to that when we get to the we get to the movie, if we get to the movie. But yeah, so Jay Akavone or Akavone. Yeah, no, I really liked him as well. It's in my notes as well. A couple of really emotional moments with him. And I think that those moments tend to only work when the actor is good enough to pull them off. 
And sometimes in the show, the actor is not good enough to pull them off. But he actually is. And, and it's funny, I, I think I actually would have liked to have seen more of him as a regular on the show, because I think he's, he's that good. But of course, you know, I had to get written out because of this plot. But I did think he's one of the best aspects of this of this episode. I was really impressed. A couple of the scenes where he's locked down and being Kowalski and freaking out. Yeah. And then he just instantly just transitions to this Gould who is right. entirely arrogant and obnoxious and ordering everyone around and should be treated like a god and just absolutely beautifully done. I, I was very, very impressed with his job in this. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we're going to go through all the, the beats of the episode, but I think the other big thread of the episode is basically Teal'c, right? Like him adapting a bit to Earth, even though he can't leave the base, and then how the, the military treats him in this episode, both good and bad. You know, again, I think they handled that about as well as they could. Like, he's got to get used to the fact that this is what Earth is like. So he's watching television and seeing all these news reports of how bad things are. But he also saying, well, I want to be uh, someone who helps this planet, someone who represents this planet. And of course, the military wants him for experiments instead. And it, it's, again, it's also really interesting with the way they portray the military. And it's right from the very beginning that the military is both, you know, the good guys Almost always, like for basically every season, there's going to be some aspect, some B-plot, some arc of the military also providing some of the antagonists for the show because some part of the military wants to do something worse than what the good guys want to do. And they start that right off the bat, this first kind of episode after the, the pilot and they have to thread the needle, right? The Jack O'Neill is not going to completely rebel against all authority. He's not going to start a revolution. He's not going to set up a new government. But he is going to resist the bad influences, the bad impulses of his superiors, of, of everybody else. And so a lot of episodes are going to be about threading that needle in a way that is dramatically satisfying, and sometimes not so dramatically satisfying. They get the chance to start that here and to, and to exercise that plot, exercise that pattern, and I think they do pretty well with it. Yeah, you know, at certain points, he's arguing all the time, but there's a certain point where it looks like he might almost be considering just trying to sneak Teal'c back through a gate somehow. And I like the ambivalence there. Certainly, there are a lot of very good, fine people in the military, and there are other people who have other priorities. And, you know, in this case... It makes sense that there would be people off at the Pentagon who had never met this guy who would just want to exploit this resource as an object rather than a person because invasion threat, a terrifying enemy or heartless bureaucracy, take your pick. (laughs) That's the thing, though, because Kennedy isn't wrong. The reality is, is there's this definitive threat of the species that can not only attack us at any point, but also can take over our bodies. And they know nothing about them. I do appreciate that there is a point where Kennedy's arguments are not entirely unjustified. I mean, it would absolutely make sense to say, Teal, we just need you to sit in a room for six weeks and tell us everything you know about gold society and weapons and everything. It's the taking him off to another team for unnamed interrogations and possibly experiments. Dissection. That's the part that is so very objectionable. Well, it's absolutely objectionable, but there is, I think, a strategic value for it. With Teal'c, it is less obvious. For Kowalski, it is more. You could argue that the best thing you can do as a soldier for your country is keep the gold inside you and allow us to do such to it. Like, there's an argument there. Yeah, there's an argument there. There is no argument for stupid Kennedy wanting to just negotiate with the gold directly. <laughs> 
That was not going to work. No, but I mean, Teal'c was even on side with that. The Gould wants to live, and that was their one piece where they, which they could at least try. And even though I think Teal'c knew the offer they were presenting was not going to go through. Another nice thing about this episode, and and we, you know, we see this again in in the Knox, the other episode we're going to be going over in detail today. That Teal'c is a source of information, and from a show standpoint, you know, he's the source of exposition. Right? He's the source of information that that. We want to have the people in the show know for the sake of the dramatic situations we want to portray. And there's, you know, no other realistic way for them to get that information in how they've portrayed the Gould as not being people who will ever help them or help or participate in, in conversations in any way. So we got to get it somehow. Hey, let's get it from Teal'c. Teal'c knows all this stuff. And I think the show also does a really good job of surprising Teal'c. I really, really quite like the scene where we know and all of them know that Earth is, in fact, the source of humanity oh, yeah. of the entire galaxy. And Teal'c is entirely caught off guard by his realization that he has happened upon the origin of, in fact, even his ancestors. Right. They do some really important world building, universe building in this episode where Teal'c explains that um, human style people were seeded throughout the galaxy by the gold because they make excellent hosts and the Jaffa were bred from humans. And, you know, that, of course, is very convenient for Doyleist reasons as to how do Stargate teams keep running into human-type people instead of, you know, alien aliens. But, you know, it makes a lot of sense in show terms that that does seem like a gouldish thing to do, and it sets up other interesting possibilities that we will see later. Let's just say they handle it with more class than Star Trek Next Generation did. Oh gosh, yes. <laughs> yes. I didn't even watch that show very much, but I know that episode. Oh gosh. I kind of like that episode, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, there's actually a nice scene with Daniel where he doesn't quite know what to do with himself and he's just trying to kind of stay awake. Yeah, he's talking with Carter. Yeah. He, he's continually on the alert and he doesn't really understand that he's in it for the long haul. <laughs> he's hoping that, you know, they'll find Sharae soon. And mild spoiler, that's not going to happen for a while. <laughs> it's nice when a show like this, which is not normally very psychologically deep, does give them a chance to mm -hmm. actually show the mental ramifications of this trauma that they've all been through mm -hmm. and that he's been through, especially like, you know, to, to make him feel a little more human Yes, for this. I, and I like that amidst all the other stuff that's going on this episode that they gave him that, that scene. Right. And I also just wanted to mention briefly about Kowalski that they allowed him to say when he realized what was happening, this is scaring me big time. And they do moments through about that kind of thing through the series. They, they allow their characters, even the tough military type ones to admit when they're scared, when they're in a bad situation, when they're not sure that they can accomplish something. And that makes the stakes higher uh, and it makes the people more easier to sympathize with. Yeah, relatable. Yeah, yeah. When the tough guys show that they're scared, it lets you know that this is a real threat, like a, a real scary threat. And as long as we're talking about relatable, uh, again, the they do some nice work, some nice evolution with General Hammond. He basically starts the episode the same way he starts the other episode. A little bit. With O'Neill, where he says, oh, down to business. And you're like, didn't you say that before? So he's starting with the same gruffness as before. But then, you know, you kind of get those moments where he says, as long as there's a snowball's chance in hell that my officer will come out of this procedure alive, we're going to go ahead with it. And I'm like, oh, Hammond's a good guy after all. Yes. 
He's on our side. In some ways, the show portrays being good as kind of being the opposite of being a cold, hard realist, right? Like cold, hard realist would let someone die, would, you know, would let the ghoul take over a person, would do all these horrible things. But, you know, the good, the good people go for that 1% chance. And of course, because it's a show, then they often win in a lot of the kids. Not, not quite here, right? I guess. So that's, that's saying something. Yeah, I'm not sure I would go with realist because uh, caring for other people and valuing sure. teams and people is also a facet of realism. I would say cold hard pragmatist, maybe. Well, and wasn't there one thing at the beginning, I think it was this episode, right, where they're like, O'Neill and Kowalski are sort of mock arguing about which planet to go to. And uh, Hammond is like, why don't you go where I tell you? Yeah, I like that line too. The fun little line. <laughs> And you know, he's still at the point where he's kind of annoyed with them more than uh, on board with them. But playfully, I think. Yeah. A little. Okay. <laughs> you know, there's still that sense of, we see it later on in the Knox as well, where General Hammond is kind of having to keep that control over O'Neill, like keep him from going off half cocked, like keep him from doing something he'll regret. Mm-hmm. And again, that's kind of going to be Hammond's job for the next couple of years. So good. He's getting some practice at it. So the big scene, you know, so we kind of go back and forth a little bit about Teal'c and what they're going to do with Teal'c and with Kowalski, and they find out that Kowalski's possessed. And, you know, then we get that big scene, and we've, we've talked about it a little already, where, you know, he's on the table, and he knows he's a ghoul. You know, it's a big emotional moment. What are we going to do about... And then there's also the big emotional aspect of that, where the ghoul comes out, and so they have that confrontation with it, and uh, where Kennedy is trying to, to reason with it, and it's not going to work. And again, there's kind of a nice dramatic moment and again uh reinforced by the the actor who plays kowalski that he can he can play this menacing character mm-hmm. and then they kind of you know the action kind of stops dead with the the surgery as it has in in other parts there was actually that one bit of surgery in the firefly which kind of stops the episode dead uh and that kind of reminded me of that here we're like you know, we have to have a surgery in the middle because that's what we said was going to happen but it also basically we don't do anything during that moment we just kind of do a little montage of everybody but i kind of like that aspect of the surgery though because it, it's the question like there's an action that happens but is that really the climax of it and they're basically just sort of holding you on going okay you have to keep watching this to find out what's really happening you have to keep watching you have to keep watching that's right so basically you're just waiting for the shoe to drop yep Right. Well, it has some nice ups and downs because at first they think the operation is a success. We removed the snake and Kowalski is still alive. So yay, we won. But it turns out that that was only the husk and the gould was thoroughly assimilated into Kowalski. And so it's still in him and it eventually takes him over. And he tries to escape again out the gate and dies in a rather grisly way as the (laughs) gate gets shut down with his head partway through it. And people commiserate with Jack, and Jack says, as far as I'm concerned, the best line of the episode, my friend died on the table. One aspect of the operation that confused me on my initial watching is they have a CGI view of the operation that's going on, and I think whoever was told to do the post-production of the CGI knew that some bits of the Gould were going to be left. <laughs> because in the CGI, you actually see parts of the Gould breaking off in the body. Oh, yeah. Okay. And then I, then they pull out this big piece and it's like, but, but there was another piece in there. I saw another piece in there. <laughs> so I, I don't know if it was intentional or just a function of the post-production just throwing that in, but it confused me a bit. But then it also made sense at the end. So it was more like, well, why didn't they see it? But 
Eh, it works either way. Well, and how, how a piece of this creature would lodge itself in his head? You know, there isn't all that much free space in your head <laughs> for something like that to expand. But, you know, they wanted to have that graphic at the end where the, the bit of the body comes out of the back of his head. And, you know, that's drama. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but that's drama. So Yeah, just move past that. <laughs> and then at the very end, right, they, you know, they're all suited up. And they go through the gate together, and that's really, you know, that's really kind of the start of the the episodic nature of the show and them going off on adventures. Right. Hammond has been on the phone with the president, <laughs> who he knows personally. We, I don't think we ever find out how or why, but anyway, he uh, yeah. took a direct line through the bureaucracy and preserved Teal'c as part of his SG-1 team instead of letting the military bureaucracy have him. There's some chain of command question I might have issues with there, but hey, whatever. <laughs> he totally subverted uh, the chain of command. <laughs> oh, always. He Multiple times he's done that. <laughs> well, I guess they're not in the same chain of command, so. Which would kind of explain why is this apparently just one-star general in charge charge of this right. otherworldly exploration thing. Why didn't they get someone else to lead it? Well, apparently Hammond has some oh, yeah. serious strings that he can pull. One other world building thing that we learn is that something of the host must survive, even if it's only memories, because Kowalski Gould still knew the codes for the Stargate system. So Daniel actually, sadly, <laughs> takes some encouragement from this, which may or may not be warranted. Another nice aspect of world building I liked that really helped add to the tension, but also made sense, was every single time the gate was opened and an uh, attack happened and the bugs would hit the windshield, they also put an automatic timer to self-destruct the entire base such that if, for whatever reason, they lost control of the base, everything will get destroyed, the Stargate will be buried, and oh well. I really like that as a, an additional step that made sense and I think really adds to the tension but doesn't feel false. The transponder thing, which they end up eventually just calling a remote, basically you have to have your dial home tech piece, you know, pager, whatever it is, <laughs> to in order to get back through the gate, which, you know, absolutely that makes sense that they would put in something like that. Didn't they say anything about other, any other teams being off-world at the time of these attacks? They implied that they weren't able to get anyone out because the attacks were so constant. Yeah, weren't able to send anyone out yet, right? Right, right. Which again reminds me of like the Battlestar Galactica, that 33. Exactly. Yeah. That was right after the the, right. the miniseries, whatever, the movie that they had. Mm -hmm. And it's the same sort of sense of like, let's make something really tense that shows what our opponents are up to. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the better episodes of Battlestar Galactica as well. It was also, yeah, True, definitely. true. Uh, one thing I expected a bit was some additional dry humor as the show progresses. It seemed to be something that O'Neill would lean towards and I really quite liked the lines between O'Neill and Tilk where O'Neill says, regarding Apophis sending troops through the wormhole, O'Neill says, they'll be in for a surprise, huh? And Tilk responds, your iris will be closed, they will be crushed. And O'Neill responds with, surprise! Yeah. Which is so dark <laughs> and so funny. This was a great episode. He definitely has quite a few lines like that, whether they're quite that dark or not. His delivery again makes a lot of these lines work. So we got the got the full team together, and they're gonna they're gonna go out on adventures. Yep. This is currently my favorite episode, so we'll we'll see uh, when it gets uprooted with a new favorite. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. So there's four episodes we're not going to cover. In depth. Before we get to the one that we are. But we will go over like a short synopsis of each of them just to, for completeness sake. We're, we're still kind of figuring out how the show is, is going to work here. Mm -hmm. But so what, let's just go over those real quick. So the, um, the first one is Emancipation. 
And this is, again, sort of the first episode, the first episodic episode where, I guess I should probably find a better way to say that, <laughs> where they go to a forest planet. So Drink, uh, populated by Mongols, brought there by the Gua'uld. The culture portrayed as a culture where women are property. So when they bring Sam through, Sam runs afoul of that culture. There's also your bog standard star-crossed lovers subplot, which you see in a lot of things. So now Sam eventually kicks the butt of the enemy chieftain. In ritual combat, of course, and everyone lives happily ever after. And that's pretty much all you need to know about the plot. I'll add three more things. Um, the actual women's liberation parts of the episode, because it's called Emancipation, are handled no more deftly than the on-the-outside moment from the first episode, so that's why we're not covering it in any more depth. And at one point, the show actually admits that the real Mongols weren't this restrictive about women in their culture. They had to, they have to kind of come up with a reason why they were on this planet. So they couldn't even get their culture entirely right for this lesson they wanted to give us. And third, the last thing is that there are some throwaway lines in the episode where this is not actually the first post-Kowalski planet that they visited. So the show is kind of telling us that this is not meant to be an exhaustive portrayal of the team's adventures, that they're going to a whole bunch of places and we're only seeing some of them. And that's pretty much all I have to say about Emancipation. Yep. I have nothing to say about Emancipation because I didn't watch it. <laughs> As noted, you can go to fruits.ca slash Stargate and you can see both which episodes we're doing podcasts in depth on, which episodes I'm going to watch, and then the full list, which only Andrew and Trish will be able to respond to. So after Emancipation, the next episode that I watched was The Broca Divide. SG-1 investigates a high-concept analogy world of light versus dark, culture versus chaos, good versus evil, where the team bring back an infectious disease and makes everyone act like cave people. Kind of brutal and sexist, but Richard Dean Anderson gets some fun acting in. Uh, yeah. Yep. This was not as good an episode as The Enemy Within. <laughs> No. Definitely not. <laughs> it has a few horrible things about their treatment of Carter again. Yeah. They come across a scene where, where they're seeing a woman about to get raped. Carter says, we have to stop them. And Daniel gives this really gross evolutionary biology excuse that rape is okay, which doesn't go over well. Carter says, I call it rape and I think we should stop it. And then it gets solved due to other reasons. But uh, yeah. Yeah, I rewatched this episode in sympathy with you, David. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that was indeed a horrible line from Daniel, who I would think would know better than just saying, oh, it's just survival of the fittest. Jack stopping Carter does absolutely make sense, though, because that is not their mission. They're not there exploring other worlds to save other people. So I was okay with Jack stopping her from charging to the rescue, I just really hated the lines that they gave to Daniel there. And there was another party coming to the rescue right at that moment as well. This is like the other line about Carter asking about Share being a gift, where Carter says something very, very good, and then it gets ignored. Yeah. This episode also has the scene where Carter is infected and therefore tries to seduce O'Neill. Yeah. But O'Neill makes fun of her for it later. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. <sighs> Yeah, not too Not good. the best episode, but yeah. it was there. As far as Stargate science goes, I'm a little confused by the whole histamine thing uh, where Daniel's allergies come into play, but it turns out not that his immunoresponse uh, hyper-efficiency saves him, it's that the drugs he takes right. to suppress that are 
good at fighting the infection, which yep. didn't make sense to me at all, but I guess it doesn't matter. Be scientifically sure, it probably makes no sense, but it is a nice way for them to clear up the fact that he's not going to be sneezing through 10 seasons of Stargate SG-1. Yeah, I think there's at least another episode where it's mentioned that I was uh, yeah. thinking about that, and I, I believe it comes into play at a certain point later. Another thing that is important about this episode, though, so I'm glad uh, David watched it, is that we get the introduction of Dr. Janet Frazier who is a recurring character, and I always enjoy her appearances. I just like her. It is a lot of a boys' club in the show, and so when they do have notable women characters, I do think it's it's good for the show to do that. Yeah, she's strong, but she's not military, although I guess she's in the chain of command, but she's she's a good character who is not a military, uh, hyper-military person, at least. Your turn. I get possibly, you know what, almost certainly an even worse episode, (laughs) which is, again, why I didn't tell you to to watch it. So it's called The First Commandment, and they're on another forest planet, Drink, the captain of the team SG-9, Captain Hansen, who once proposed to Captain Carter, has set himself up as a god over the primitive humans there. So SG-1 must uh, arrive and free the people there and repair a ghoul device that is the only way to protect the people from the planet's high-radiation sun. And the title is from the, the Ten Commandments. But they kind of even don't get that right. And they lampshade it, but it's, uh, it's just not very memorable or anything. The big thing is it's sort of the white savior trope. And they're kind of going against it, I guess, by saying that SG-1 is going against the person who's who's done this, but it's still not great. It's not done in a way that's particularly compelling, for one. It's not done in a way that makes it worth having spent a whole episode on, again, sort of the white savior trope. So that'll be it. That'll be all we're going to talk about there. So moving on. Okay, I did watch Cold Lazarus. I'm happy I watched this episode. It's a strange one. (laughs) An alien crystal gives themselves O'Neill's body and memories, takes his place, and has some very strange and stilted scenes with O'Neill's ex-wife, finally giving O'Neill and his ex-wife some closure by pretending to be their dead son for a bit. It's a weird, (laughs) weird story. And there's aspects of it I thought were interesting. One question I have about this show that I haven't gotten an answer for really is how many alien life forms there will be. I kind of like that generally Stargate seems to be mostly humans and human evolved humans. People. Yeah. Um, here we have some weird crystal alien form that, again, can act like humans. But you get a lot of backstory with O'Neill and his wife and what happened to his child. And I thought it was reasonably done. But it's certainly strange watching Richard Dean Anderson walking around acting like a piece of wood for a while. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Nope. Close your mouth, Andrew. We'll get to the jokes I can make about that (laughs) in future seasons. (laughs) I rewatched this too, and I think it was worth rewatching. I certainly wasn't sorry that I spent the time on it. One thing that just never gets mentioned is, as far as I can recall, is that uh, Jack's wife looks a lot like Carter, (laughs) which, at least in the show, they're both much of a size, same basic frame, short blonde haircuts. And it just doesn't get mentioned at all, as far as I can tell. Lots of things about Jack and Sam don't get mentioned. And I also think that some of that is just that that's probably what casting directors kind of look for in women actors for, you know, Hollywood and mainstream TV shows. But but yeah, I'll agree that it could be something that could be worked into the show, sure. What I don't know, of course, is whether we're going to see her again. Uh, it's, the show certainly implies that we will, but time will tell. The other thing, and I haven't watched this again recently, so kind of going at it from memory, but this is another episode which demonstrate that this is not like a prestige drama. This is a melodrama. 
They're not trying to show the real mm-hmm. exquisite depths of, of human behavior. They're going broad. They're going wide. They're like, oh, things are either really sad or really happy or whatever. And it's just, you know, this is not going to teach you anything new about the human condition, right? This is going to reinforce what you know about about sadness and loss and Okay, it, it's good for that, but it's it's why I didn't think we needed to spend a huge amount of time on it. Fair call. Yeah. Just one other point. Christopher Judge, who plays Teal'c, has said uh, in interviews that Stargate was not a message show, yep. but occasionally there were messages anyway. And here, you know, they don't beat you over the head with it, but obviously anyone watching can draw the conclusion that <laughs> yep. you shouldn't leave unsecured guns around where kids can play with them and end up killing themselves. Or even bows and arrows. We'll see going forward. <laughs> the only thing I will say about aliens is that um, the kind of aliens we're going to see on Stargate SG-1 are the kind of aliens you can portray. <laughs> <laughs> That's the kind of aliens you're going to see on Stargate SG-1. A crystal in a box. Yep. We can do that as an alien. No problem. Crystal and the only way it moves is when it's in a human form. Yeah, we can do that. Yep. Yeah. That was a little bit of CGI, right? That's a little bit of CGI. And some of it wasn't that bad, actually. It wasn't that great, but okay, it wasn't that bad. All right, so we I guess we can move on to uh, this episode, the next episode, which is the Knox. And I will say as a way of introduction, so we now know what David's favorite episode is so far. <laughs> Having watched 10 seasons of this show, I will say the Knox is actually one of my favorite episodes of the entire series. Well, let's give a recap. The Secretary of Defense wants technological discoveries. Teal'c offers an invisible monster hummingbird hunt. SG-1 bumps into Apophis, who they try to capture, but SG-1 is killed and then healed by the Nox. The Nox tells SG-1 to stop being mean, and a healed <laughs> Jaffa guard escapes to tell Apophis about the Nox. Nafru goes to say hi to Apophis and is killed. There's a big fight while Nafru is healed. Finally, the Nox deus ex machinas the fight and sends everyone home, revealing their floating city to SG-1. Nafreyu is the kid's name. Right. So, of course, rewatching this, probably when I saw it the first time, I have some vague memories. But uh, the thing that really struck me was how very similar this whole episode is to Star Trek, the original series, Errand of Mercy, season one, episode 27, where Kirk wanted to protect the primitive Organians. Spoilers for TOS. From Klingons, and by the way, use their system as a military base. And the Organians said, no, we don't need your help. (laughs) They stopped the war, not only the fighting on their planet, but the war everywhere, making phasers too hot to touch and things like that. And they turned out to be advanced energy beings. Way to spoil the original series for me, Trish. <laughs> what? <laughs> Seriously, I'm sorry. Were you on a rewatch of that too? <laughs> that's no, that that's fine. I felt like I had to make that joke, but yes, no. I haven't actually watched all of the original series uh, episodes, so I have a watch order for that too. <laughs> oh yes, and I think it includes this episode because it's a good episode. <laughs> well. David can cut it out if he that's wants. That's fine. That's fine. That's fine. It fits well because this show also has me going, wait a second, that's a Star Trek actor because we have Quark in this episode. <laughs> Armin Shimmerman is probably the one you mean. Yep. And it was really fun to see him playing something a little different in this episode than we are used to seeing. We're used to seeing him as Quark in Star Trek uh, Deep Space Nine. Um, then he was also a principal in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yes, he was. Those are the two shows that I remember seeing him in. I did not actually recognize him, of course, until he opened his mouth. Mm-hmm. And then I recognized him very quickly. <laughs> well, they've got these wigs on, but uh, yeah. So one of the things that I had to learn again from watching it again was I had not been sure that these 
creatures were portrayed as being humans or not. And there is actually a specific line where Daniel says, oh, they're human, humanoid, but they're from some other, they're from some other parallel evolutionary strain because they're so advanced. I don't know if I believe it, but okay. We can trust that for now. I was wondering if it would actually go the Organa route. Yeah. And this is just a visual representation of them that they're showing the humans and they don't actually look like that at all. There's another version of headcanon for you. Yeah. Well, I'm, you know, and they're in these pajamas and they've got these silly wigs on and that's supposed to convince you that they're not actually human beings. Yeah, that's very Star Trek, right? That's very original series ish of them to do it like that. <laughs> the reason I liked it was again, because it's it's a very high concept, single episode story, and they get to kind of learn something. They get to have these confrontations with the bad guys. And then there's the, the twist at the end and they lampshade everything. Absolutely. There's basically a, a line of dialogue to explain the questionable decisions all the way through the episode, you know, why they go after Apophis, why the gate actually disappeared, which you think would be a bad idea for a race to do when they're trying to not show themselves to anyone. I actually think that that was not actually well explained. I have that in my notes. Why in the world did they make the gate disappear? Their gear disappears, sure, but the gate? (laughs) Well, I believe the idea was that they wanted to keep the flying creatures away because the ghoul were hunting them. I I don't see how that relates, (laughs) but okay. I agree there was a line there. I don't know what it was lanterning, though. Right, so they had a line there, yeah. And there's a progressive disclosure of information, right? You only get to find out maybe in the middle or after that, that the Nox are the ones who are actually making everything disappear. Although you probably could figure it out before then. But, you know, that's when the characters figure out that that's what's going on. And then uh, you you find out that they they heal, but then they also need to be visible when they do that. I like that SG-1 kind of got to, you know, again, got kind of learned something from it, got to have sort of a, a, a closure to the whole thing. And I like the elegance of them saying, well, we find out that you have technology that we would actually really like to have just at the moment where our actions have precluded us from ever learning about it. Right. But they do make a little progress in that the Knox actually do reveal hey, we're advanced. And that is after they finally understand that the Stargate team is actually trying to get their weapons back because they want to protect the Knox, uh, as opposed to just being super aggressive. And it is after Teal'c says that in our place, the strong defend the weak. It's after that that uh, the father, Knox, reveals the floating city. And so I like that touch. So there is, you know, maybe you're slightly more advanced than we thought you were. You're a little farther along the path you need to go. Slightly more advanced than Captain Kirk. (laughs) My favorite line of the episode, although definitely not the most important line of the episode, is when Jack is trying to talk to them and convince them, hey, we need our weapons back. We need to uh, fight these evil ghouls. They're bad. They're very bad. (laughs) (laughs) They're very bad. Yeah, I like that. Jack and Daniel can't come up with any good words, but they're very bad. And they keep getting told no. And Jack finally says, is there anyone else I can talk with? (laughs) (laughs) That tends to be a frustration for him again and again, but it's just so typical a line for him. I love it. Well, they do say a couple of times in the episode, again, I I was looking for it this time around, that there are others Right, so it's not just this little tiny settlement in the forest alone that there are there are others that, that they could have gone to for, for help or whatever. Right, but there's no leader as such that Jack can go negotiate he with. He says they don't want to talk to you. Yeah, exactly. There might be a leader, they don't want to talk to Jack. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> right. And again, like, again, that Armin Sherman is 
you know, we kind of know him as an actor who's playing sharper characters than this, you know, characters who are more uh, sarcastic, who are more uh, aggressive. And I do think it's it's nice for him. You know, he's kind of playing against type, but he's also kind of playing, like, he gets some really murderous looks at Jack throughout the episode as, as Jack progressively annoys him more and more and more. Mm-hmm. So I do think that, you know, again, he, he is, he's sort of the father figure in terms of his role, but he's also his father figure in terms of the figuratively, he's the one who's trying to protect these people and, and standing up to, again, the outsiders who were kind of a bad influence on his family. Really, I really liked his performance for this. Yeah, he has a nice way of just tightening his lips as he's looking at Jack. <laughs> I think the show does a very nice thing. I mean, it's a bit silly that the young Knox would go and visit the ghoul, but it does allow this wonderful parallelism <laughs> where Antinous, Antaeus? Antaeus. Mm-hmm. Antaeus. Yes, Antaeus says, the very young do not always do what they are told, yeah. which of course equally refers to O'Neill and the rest yeah. of the gang because they are as young or younger probably than the young Knox. Right. Yeah, we're talking about you know, sort of comedic moments and there's a bunch of them in this episode and amidst all the other drama that's going on where there's a couple of lines from Daniel Jackson when he, he's offered this, this very disgusting looking tree sap and he said, no, I'm trying to quit, which he has made that joke already, didn't he? Like, <laughs> right, there was at least another... Of course, I remember where he made that joke. But then another one, and you could tell he was going to say it when the, the alien says, I'm 432 years old, and he doesn't quite know what to say. <laughs> he says, well, you look great. And I, that made me laugh. What's best is the Knox then responds, thanks. <laughs> yeah, right. right. <laughs> Lex accepts the compliment. That was the bit that got me. <laughs> A lot of this episode I liked far more, actually, the second time. The first time it was like, okay. And then the second time I really got into enjoying it. But I was amazed how much more I liked it the second time. <laughs> One little thing, I did quite like the uh, shield generator. One thing I liked about it is Teal could never knew about it, which basically implies that no one's ever tried to rebel against the Gould enough the Gould, the Gould ever had to show their defensive technology. No, yeah. I like that. I'm disappointed that they did not just go all out and use the line from Dune that the slow arrow penetrates the shield. <laughs> I was waiting for that line and they didn't quite give it. Yeah, they didn't do it. No, no, they're not. Yeah. One other thing about the costuming, I kind of like the Nox, but they kind of look like a stereotypical D&D druid mixed with a Kazon from Star Trek Voyager. <laughs> but hey, fine. There's good moments for Teal'c, right? Because he's face-facing that other... Jaffa. Mm-hmm. He has the golden thing on his head. I think he might be the first prime then of Apophis, but it's not necessarily stated. Shackle. Mm-hmm. And then he's also, you know, he gets to give a little exposition and backstory at the very beginning of the episode where he gets to say, oh, you're looking for technology? I can take you to technology. Which I also thought was kind of funny because the, the gate dialing this other planet and they're all set to go on it. Like, nope, we're going to go to the Knox place instead. Yeah, I really like that. Is they, they open up a gate and then yeah. there's no conversation about what was actually on the other side of that gate. The plot entirely changes. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And presumably the gate somewhere that Teal'c just has remembered the gate address for. So I also think there's some good stuff, and we've already talked about a little bit of it. Right. With O'Neill in this episode where he's, you know, he's trying to convince the Knox that this is really bad. You got you to stop it. You got you to change your ways. And of course, he doesn't get anywhere to it. But that one line at the very end where he's shouting into the forest, you know, they won't spare you. From a dramatic standpoint, I, I, I like that. I like that moment. Mm-hmm. And then at the very end, again, he sells that line where he's like basically saying exactly the same thing immediately after the Knox said it to him. So it shouldn't actually be all that dramatically significant and weighty. He sells it. He sells it. And I liked, I liked that moment. And I also think right at the moment where they learn about the technology, they can't get it. For me, and maybe it's just me, but I do think that this is as close as the show is going to get to poetry, right? These kind of 
kind of scenes like that where it's uh, some turnaround, some poignant moment. That's as close as the show is going to get to, to sort of that sort of elegance to it. Again, I just don't think the, the show has it in it to do that very often or to do that with any more sort of delicate moments of, of the human condition. But they, I think they pulled it off here. Yeah, it's really nice. Right before Jack says that Daniel had been all sad that, you know, once they get sent home, right. the, the Nox are going to bury the Stargate and the humans can never come back. And Jack says the very young do not always do as they are told, which to me means Jack thinks maybe there's a way we can get back here sometime. And it's also possible. It's unclear exactly how the Nox will actually deal with the possible future orbital bombardment, <laughs> but maybe the Nox technology can cover that too. Let's just, let's just hope so. Yeah. Kind of, it's kind of hand wavy, right? Like they are so pacifist, they will be willing to initiate a war with the Gould now that the Gould know that they are there. But yeah, yeah let's just not think about that too. Or maybe they can just disappear the whole planet. Who knows? Disappear the whole planet. I really Ooh, quite like neat. the line that relates to that earlier in the episode, where Jackson asks, "Why do you not bury the Stargate?" And Ofer responds, "They would know someone had buried it." Mm. <laughs> Which is a nice bit of logic. It's a nice bit of logic. I, I think the show kind of does a good job, but it's also a very delicate job of building up the situation such that they can get this story out of it, right? Because a lot of things had to go exactly a certain way, both in history and now, for you know the team to actually have this particular dramatic story going on with them. But you know, like the, the gate had to have gotten put there by somebody. Was it the Gould? Even though this planet was uninhabited, meh. And then, the, you know, the Knox had to have decided that they were going to follow the strategy of letting, basically letting bad guys all over their territory just because they didn't want to be known. And I guess that falls through with them, with this idea of them being pacifists who are willing to go a long way to keep from ever fighting with anyone. But uh, I, yeah, I would assume that if, in fact, the Knox are older than this Stargate being put there, that when the Stargate was put there, they just didn't reveal themselves. Yeah, yeah. So whoever put the Stargate there probably never knew the Nox was there. But maybe not. Mm -hmm. Never knew the Nox were there. Right. Yet. They were just chasing the birds. I don't expect to see the Nox again, but to my experience with the later shows, well, they'll occasionally bring people back. So we'll see. I had a couple things from the beginning of the episode when we had the Secretary of Defense telling them to go find technology. And I was reminded that I was considering whether we should name the podcast Stargate SG Colonists <laughs> as they go around and try and explore new lands and take stuff from them. But I really quite liked O'Neill's line. Cultures with advanced technology tend not to like to share it. As we yeah, see in this right. episode. That line and this entire thing is just set up very cleanly. Uh, a little a little heavy-handed. It's definitively the entire episode <laughs> is written in that line. But it does still work really well. How do you like it when the prime directive gets turned around on you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the show is never going to do subtle all that well. So you got to take what you can get. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, this whole idea. So the show kind of portrays it as a as a benevolent thing that they're going out and exploring. But this idea that a Western culture is going to go out into lands that are not Western culture and just quote unquote explore is something that a lot of historians would tell you is is a pretty suspect idea. You know, Europe exploring the rest of the world. They closed it in the terminology of exploration, but it was about conquest and it was about, you know, stealing and it was about hurting people basically in order to get what you want. And the fact that the show is basically unironically calling themselves explorers without trying to deal with any of that historical baggage shows you that the show is not, again, like a really deep show. It's not a show that's really self-aware of the tropes that it's dealing with. And, you know, you just got to go with it. 
it's just clear to me now than maybe 20 years ago when I first saw it that, again, this show weaves a lot of stuff unexamined as it goes. And it could really, it would have been a better show if they had at least tried to be a little more aware of uh, of history of, of the world, the real world. And I'm sure I'll come back to this. They kind of know that there's something there that they don't quite understand because the way they represent the Secretary of Defense and occasionally these other people from the military coming in yep. is all of these people are trying to force Stargate Command, SG-1 people, to go and be colonists and explorers and steal technology and be horrible. But the main crew definitively is constantly pushing back. The SG-1, they clearly would like to go visit places, make friends. Make friends, right. And learn. Right. In the Broca Divide, Jack just wants to leave after they find out that it's a primitive culture. And uh, Daniel says, but we could learn so much. Minoan culture, uh, blah, blah, blah. And they get back and Hammond says, the president has decided that we're also going to do cultural exploration right. thing. Yeah. But then, you know, three episodes later in the Knox, it's you explored 19 uh, worlds and you haven't brought us any advanced tech back yet. So <laughs> it is funny that push and pull that you get there. Push and pull, yeah. Which is actually kind of realistic, right? That that the government would change its mind and mm-hmm. be conflicted. So so I think that's the only aspect where I think the show kind of understands that there's a problem, that they are this group of people who are just good people who are trying to push back a little bit from how bad this could be represented. Yeah. The other thing, sorry, the other thing that, that, that occurred to me then that I knew I wanted to talk to was in a lot of sort of more recent prestige science fiction shows or other sorts of drama shows, like if you got together a team like this, there would be conflict within the team. There would be mm-hmm. people who distrust other people because of who they are, because of where they're coming from. And this show does have people having different roles. You know, they're still the scientists versus the, the military. But for the most part, for all of these episodes so far and you know spoiler a lot of the episodes in the future the conflicts will be the team against something else rather than the team arguing amidst themselves about something and again i think that's what people like about the show is that there's not a lot of this bickering within the team that they they get to be a united friend they get to be a family and uh it is sort of funny like again when i first watched the show i was wondering whether they were going to push those conflicts that were there in the movie and that were there in the first episode of the show and it really just kind of disappears pretty quickly on the other hand that means these people are all presented as reasonable professional people acting professionally doing their darn job (laughs) yay (laughs) and with prestige tv the one thing you see are a bunch of yahoos Yep. that let every little bit of drama get in the way of them doing their job. <laughs> so to a degree, I'm okay with that. And yep. this is going to come up again in the star in, in the Stargate TV shows if we continue with the later shows because Battlestar Galactica happened and TV changed. Mm-hmm. And there's there's no way around that. So we'll, yep. that conversation might come back. Yep. But I like that about this show. I like the fact that people can be in control of their emotions and their sense of self enough to just do their job professionally. Yes, absolutely, David. But also that is one thing about a long running show with a lot of episodes per season is they do have time to explore some stuff. And sometimes that's a good thing (laughs) when they get to really dive into an issue. And sometimes it's a bad thing when there's padding. So we have now actually whipped through about a third (laughs) of the season in our second podcast. (laughs) I believe we're going to slow down a bit after this. Uh, We're going to have a few more episodes 
frequently that are yep. are worth it talking about in depth instead of yep. our, you know, five minute discussions. I like this episode. I liked The Enemy Within a little more, and I can uh, appreciate the ones that I have watched and the ones we're digging into are the ones worthy digging into. Right. There's some good stuff coming up. I'm looking forward to it. Well, I think that is going to do it for this time. I would, of course, like to thank my co-hosts, co-discussers, Andrew and David. Thanks. Happy to be here. And we all would like to thank The Incomparable for hosting us as a sub-TV podcast. And, of course, we want to thank you. Our listeners who put up with us and who put up with us putting snakes in your ears.